Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. So, hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Twimmel Talk. I've got Angie Hugeback, the principal data scientist at Spare Five on the line. Angie, why don't you say hi? Hi, everyone. Hi, Sam. Hey, so happy to have you uh, have you on here today. Yeah, excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to digging into some good stuff. Awesome, awesome. So why don't we get started by having you give us a little bit about your background and how you got started in machine learning? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I... I uh, started out as a math major in college and I took a stats class. I was at the University of Minnesota Duluth and I really fell in love with the idea that, you know, it was math, but it was applied and you could learn about the world around you, you know, through math. So I, I got really interested in statistics. I ended up getting my master's and PhD in statistics. So I got my PhD at the University of Chicago. And, um, and when I came out of school, so I had worked with my PhD advisor, um, was really big on teaching me how to creatively solve a problem, do, you know, creative algorithm development, you know, just start from the basics, you know, what are you trying to do and, and construct from there? And I was really interested in, um, in doing that. I, I had a strong interest in machine learning types of topics. So when I came out of school, I had this idea, you know, that I want to work in machine learning, but I want to do, you know, the creative algorithm development and trying to find that. And um, at the time, you know, the term data scientist didn't exist yet, um, but that's essentially what I was interested in doing. Um, so it just took me some time from there to kind of blend between the traditional definition of statistician and sort of the engineering end of machine learning and find a good balance. And this is where I landed. Awesome. Now, what were some other kinds of problems that you uh, were interested in in grad school uh, as yeah. a statistician? statistician uh, looking into machine learning. Yeah, sure. Um, there was when I was doing my master's degree, I had a master's thesis problem that was really fun. I was, you know, there's the game Mastermind where you have the little colored pegs and someone has a code, which is the an ordering of the of colored pegs, and you're trying to guess through making proposals of you know what you think the code might be and getting some feedback. Right. And so I had a lot of fun playing around with. I ended up building uh, like a Metropolis Hastings important sampling um, style algorithm to solve the game mastermind in a, a very limited number of steps. And, um, you know, and the game is, uh, you know, fairly straightforward when you're dealing with six pegs in the traditional sense, but then I was taking it up, you know, well, what if it's 14 pegs or 50 pegs and, and the space of the problem becomes incredibly complex. And I was really interested in, um, you know, the Metropolis Hastings algorithm is kind of like a simulated annealing algorithm where you're, you're able to sp to explore a really high dimensional space very quickly and kind of rapidly move around in the space and um, figure out where you're making progress and work toward an optimal point. So, so that was fun. Um, I, I also worked on a lot of problems in astronomy. Um, so astronomy was something I'd always been interested in, but never had a chance to learn in school. Uh -huh. um, so my advisor was awesome. Uh, Mark Corum, he, uh, invited me to, you know, come on over into the astronomy department at the University of Chicago and talk to the professors there and figure out what kinds of problems they were working on where I might be able to help out. Um, so I did some work with um, quasars. I got to do some work on um, some solar science research. Um, got to do, uh, I had a internship at NASA uh, working on some solar research, continued to do some consulting with them for a while. 
And, uh, and then the last uh, project that always sticks out, out in my mind wasn't really part of my thesis work, but when I was in my PhD program, Netflix announced their Netflix prize competition, which was, um, it was a, a competition on predictive modeling to do movie ratings, right? So, um, so they released this publicly available data set and it was all these pairs of a movie ID and a user ID and then a rating. And then right. you were supposed to be able to predict how certain users would, would rate uh, certain movies. And I played around with that problem for about six months. I came up with a great um, solution uh, and that, I, that was competitive um, in, the, in the contest. Um, but then through that, I actually came to a different understanding of, uh, of what, I, what worked better in terms of actually making recommendations so I built a, a movie recommender out of that and uh, had it up on on the web actually up until about six months ago. I was still using it <laughs> to oh, recommend wow. movies for myself and some of my friends are still using it. Um, but so those 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 kinds of problems were the things that I was generally interested in um, wow. when I was going through school. Mm -hmm. uh, so does that mean it takes you less time to pick a movie to watch than it takes the rest of us? Yeah, typically it it actually works pretty well. <laughs> I gotta get it up and running good. Yeah, the the best the best feature was being able to combine two movies. So you say, you know, I want to see something that's like, you know, uh, I want to watch a movie that's like Footloose meets Fatal Attraction or you know something like that, and then it would come up with some, uh, you know, some great uh, recommendations crossing between those two. That was really fun. Oh, nice. You mentioned a whole bunch of really interesting stuff in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I want to I want to mention since you mentioned astronomy, I don't know if you've yeah. had a chance to hear the last uh, Twimble Talk episode that I just posted uh, is with oh, no. uh, Joshua Josh Bloom, who's a astronomy professor at Berkeley and also the CTO uh, of a company that uses machine learning. I think you'll find it super interesting. If oh you know, yeah, thanks. I'll check it stuff. out. Oh, absolutely, thanks. Uh, and then you've given us an entree to go deep kind of quickly here. Uh, Metropolis Hastings important sampling. Yeah. <laughs> what is that all about? Is that yeah, well, ML or stats or? Uh, good question. I, I think it's, I, you know, it was sort of sitting in the in between the two fields and probably a little bit more in ML. Yeah. So Metropolis Hastings is some, is one thing and important sampling is another. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so Metropolis Hastings is, it's really just a, an optimization technique, you know, for, you know, maximizing a function in a high, high dimensional space where rather than say, you know, following the derivative or, or doing something more mathematical in that sense, you use a, a random component. So you say you start with a space in the high dimensional field. You say, okay, this is my initial starting point. And then you propose a, a point around there um, that you may go to next. And so, you, you come up with a proposal function. So you say, okay, um, maybe my proposal is I pick one of my dimensions at random and then I perturb that, uh, that value uh, a little bit with, with some random, you know, in some uh, random distance in, in some direction, something like that. And you say, okay, that's my proposed point. And then you compare your function on that proposed point to the function on the initial value. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a better place and you say, oh, yeah, this is a better place to go to, you'll, you know, you'll always move there. But if you if it looks a little bit worse than your initial position, you'll still move there with some small probability. And so what that allows you to do is it allows you to move away from, you know, local minima, things like that, that you might get stuck in. Yeah. And um, and it, it just 
it, yeah, in, in many, many problems, it, it provides a kind of a rapid way to search through a very high dimensional space. So. Uh, would it be fair to say that if your proposal function was, uh, was your slope in the n dimensional space that it metropolis Hastings would kind of approximate gradient descent? Um, not exactly. No, the proposal is always another, it's, it's basically a sampling. Uh, you're going to sample from the collection of all possible points that you might evaluate. Okay. Right. So, um, I mean, I suppose, I suppose you could create a, po- a proposal function that says, I always select the point that follows, you know, the, the slope, at, you know, that sort of thing. I right. suppose you can come up with that, but typically you, yeah, your proposal is supposed to have a random component and then there's the additional random component that you may choose it, even if it moves in the wrong direction. Okay. Occasionally. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Uh, so uh, that, that raises a question for me coming from a strong stats background, mm-hmm. you know, what, how does, how do you feel like this uh, guides your perspective as a data scientist? Data science has come to mean sure. a whole ton of things. Uh, for many, it, it's, you know, heavy programming for others. It's heavy data engineering. You obviously mm-hmm. it's heavy stats. Mm-hmm. Um, have you, do you, do you have kind of a philosophy on data science and kind of what that all means to you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely, definitely data science is a, is a big umbrella covering a lot of different things. And, you know, I think the, the, the whole field is, is evolving, right? And, you know, and there's, there's more and more applications in this area, many more people going into this field. Yeah, so um, I'd say now there are a lot more people coming out of a computer science background going into this type of work, um, you know, whereas back, you know, when I was coming out of school, I, you know, it was almost 50, 50. It was like machine learning was really sitting in between, um, statistics and computer science. At least that's the way that it was at, at university of Chicago. Okay. Um, yeah. And I do feel like, I think I have, um, I, I, I tend to approach problems more from the predictive modeling, uh, viewpoint. I, um, I do a lot with just, um, constructing probabilities, um, likelihood estimation, things like that, that maybe wouldn't be as commonly used coming straight from a more computer science engineering machine learning perspective where, where it may be more about um, deep learning and, you know, specific types of, of algorithms. Um, so, so I guess I see a little bit of a difference there. Um, but I, you know, and I, and I have background in more traditional statistics, you know, with just doing, you know, I don't know. So, you know, experimental design and um, doing, um, I, you know, more, more just classic kinds of testing issues and um, distribution comparisons and things like that. But I would say that's a, a small part of my daily work. It's one of those, you know, yeah, we do A-B testing, we do things like that, and I'll, I'll participate in assisting with those kinds of um, experimental analysis. Um, but typically I'm doing more, um, yeah, just constructing from probabilities, from likelihoods, um, you know, uh, working with predictive modeling, things like that to, you know, to solve our product goals and things like that. Are there things that you see commonly in the industry that you think uh, would be different uh, or approaches that folks take that uh, they might take differently if more people had a, a, a stats background? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm, I'm biased, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I tend to think, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I see them, I see them blending and I see, you know, in people today that are coming out of you know, strong computer science programs with machine learning background, really there, there's quite a bit of overlap in terms of, you know, the materials that's been taught and the skills that are there. So, um, yeah, so I'm not sure. Not sure. Okay. Okay. 
Uh, and so what are you up to now? Yeah. So, right. So now I'm here at spare five. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So what we do here at spare five, we do, um, we collect training data for computer vision and natural language models. So other companies that are building out AI, building out their own machine learning models and computer vision and natural language, um, types of problems need really good labeled training data in order to power, you know, the algorithms that they're trying to build. And so that's what we do. So, um, I got really interested in this space because at my, at my prior company, we started, uh, we were building out some natural language models there and, um, we had some really good stuff. It was working really well, but we wanted to push it to the next level. And the thing that was preventing us was just getting that really good labeled data. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about that problem. And then I heard that uh, Darren, who's our CTO here, I heard that he was at Spare 5 and I heard about what they were doing. And I just saw a huge opportunity in terms of, I was like, you know, you know, AI is getting really big. Machine learning is getting really big. It, you know, it's no longer kind of a fringe thing that a few companies are trying out. It's, you know, it's like to be in the, in the space, you know, to be competitive, companies need to be building, building these things out. And as far as I can see, the real bottleneck is in the training data. So, you know, that was where I was excited to, to jump in and, and be a part of that be a part of that business. Nice. I think there's growing recognition that, that the availability of training data is yes. one of the biggest issues that new entrants to, yes. uh, you know, folks that are trying to, to apply machine learning to various problems right. take on. And, you know, for a lot of people, they look at it and say, and I've heard this, you know, I've heard this coming from several different angles, but, you know, something along the lines of, you know, Soon, if not now, it'll be very difficult for a startup, for example, to, you know, compete with Facebook or Google or, you know, large company in industry, you know, X, because they'll have all the data and the yeah. startup will, you know, will not be able to uh, gather it and, and label it and all that. Like, do you agree with that in general? Oh, yeah. Or? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the way that I see, you know, for I think for quite a while, there the focus was on the algorithms themselves and, you know, how do we get better algorithms, better algorithms. But at this point, you know, we have so many sophisticated algorithms and very flexible algorithms, right. For solving so many different types of problems that, that really the defining factor becomes the training data that you have underneath it to power it in terms uh -huh. of what you can actually do. So yeah, I think that's a really valid concern. Um, although, you know, I would say, you know, I mean, it definitely depends on what, you know, what industry you're trying to jump into. If you have a startup and they're trying to do something new, I think, um, yeah, I definitely think, you know, if they have a specific problem that they're trying to tackle, um, that, you know, requires a very specific type of data. I think there are still a lot of opportunities to get into that space if you have access to, right. <laughs> the ability to get that, get that labeled data that you need, right. Which is, which is where we come in. Okay. So, uh, walk us through specifically what you guys are doing to help help companies. Sure, absolutely. So, I guess, yeah. So I would start by saying, you know, when so when customers come to us, uh, you know, typically the number the number one thing that they're looking for they're looking for high quality data, right? And they need that data at scale. And so, um, and I would say, you know, traditionally companies may, you know, initially they may start um, 
trying to label that data in-house, right? And they may say, you know, everybody take a few hours and, you know, look through this data, add some labels, that sort of thing, and then quickly find out, like, okay, this is going to take forever and we don't really have the resources. Um, and then a next step that companies sometimes would go to is trying to use um, these, you know, publicly available crowdsourcing, uh, things like Mechanical Turk, where, you know, yeah, there's a crowd out there. Maybe you can, you know, put your data out to them and they can label it. But that can be just incredibly painful in terms of, you know, you never know the quality of the work that you're getting back. It's like you you end up having to design an entire <laughs> workflow around just trying to QA the data that's coming back to you. You end up having to send the data out many, many times over again to multiple different people and try to assemble and make some sense out of the results that you're getting back. Okay. Um, so that can be a real headache. Um, so by the time customers get to us, <laughs> um, so what we're doing instead is we handle all of that headache for you. So basically the customer comes to us, what all they need to communicate to us is exactly what correctly labeled labeled data constitutes to them, right? So so they usually the customer will present us with some examples. Um, you know, uh, these are some images, here's some example annotations, that would be the correct annotations for these images, um, that sort of thing. Um, and from there, we do all the heavy lifting in terms of um, we, we can, we will take on the task. We will create and generate that labeled data using our own community, which is like a thoroughly vetted community. Um, we do all of the QA work and we guarantee the level of quality coming back to you in your data, right? So if you say, these are the specs, this is exactly what correctly labeled data means to us. Um, we want 95% of the data coming back to us to be correctly labeled to spec right? Then that's what, that's what we can guarantee and that's what we can provide. And so, yeah, so definitely it's, it's quality is the major challenge that we're providing just speed and scale. Um, and then one other important piece is that we, we provide, uh, we can provide diversity among the an annotators. Um, and so in particular, if there's a specific audience that the customer is interested in, so say they're building an AI model and this AI model um, is going to be used by, you know, women age, you know, 20 to 30, typically, right, in the U.S., we can target annotators from that audience so that, you know, the keywords or, you know, whatever the, the labels that they're providing are relevant and the types of things that that audience would typically use, um, which is really going to improve the performance um, for the models themselves, you know, in those types of settings. So I would say, you know, those are kind of the three three kind of pillars of problems the customers have that, that we were able to solve for them. Okay. Uh, let's come back to the diversity angle because yeah. that's super interesting. Uh, but even before you get there, if I'm a, a company and I want to solve uh, a given problem in my industry, do you are you able to help me find the right data or augment the data that I do have with other data that might help me drive better uh, predictability? Yes. Yeah, so we don't we don't um, go out and find like publicly available data sets for you. Um, you know, we are in the business of generating the data, but we definitely do augment data. So we've done data verification, sometimes you know validation. Sometimes companies have already gone through you know some steps of a process to assemble data on their own, but they're hitting the point where they're realizing like the quality is just not there, and what they need you know, what they need our community to help with is just going through and validating which ones are correct, which ones are incorrect, so that they can. Um, increase the quality there. We also, we can definitely augment data. Um, you know, uh, maybe they have images that have certain annotations. Maybe the images have 
um, tags for objects that appear in the image, but the customer now wants to identify where in the image does that tag appear. So the tag might be dog and they need to know exactly where in the image the dog is. Um, and you know, we can have our community either do you know, pixel level polygon annotation around the dog in the image, do a bounding box imita uh, annotation around the dog in the image, those types of things. So yeah, there's, there's a, there's a really wide variety of things that we can do in that sense. Okay. How much of this is best thought of as uh, like a services or consulting mm -hmm. engagement versus some platform that you guys have built up that, uh, that automates a ton of the, you know, this right. backend work? I mean, it's really both. And okay. I guess it, it depends on, I mean, the platform I think is really core and central <laughs> to what we're doing and what we are able to do here. But I would say the consulting aspect on the front end of, you know, making sure we design the task um, precisely to, you know, making sure the customer is going to be very happy with the data that they receive and, th and that it's going to do what they need it to do um, for their models is, is also absolutely essential. So I would say, um, you know, we do have some customers that come to us that, that have, you know, teams that have been working on these, these problems for a long time and they know exactly what they want and you know, they've already got an idea of, you know, you know, exactly how to kind of organize the logic of, you know, what, what a correct annotation looks like. Um, and in those cases, it can be relatively straightforward for us to move that right into our platform. In other cases, you know, we've got um, customers that, you know, they know the types of models they want to build, they've been struggling, um, and they may even want, you know, some initial consulting on, you know, what, <laughs> what types of data are available to us, you know, what, what can we do to, to improve, um, you know, improve the, uh, the, the quality of their own models. And we can, we can do some initial consulting there as well. So it really just depend, depends on the customer, but, but basically, you know, that, yeah, the consulting aspect is, is all setting up all the work, making sure we design the task correctly, going through an iterative, you know, um, process in the beginning with the customer where, you know, we say, okay, we think we understand your specs. You know, we've designed the task the way we think will work. We run, you know, maybe we do a thousand annotations for the customer, return that back to them and they verify, yes, this is what we're looking for. You know, yeah, you're, you know, yeah, the annotators are understanding the task and, and this looks good um, before we go to scale. Okay. And so you mentioned a bunch of things that customers have typically tried before they come to you. Yeah. Are you doing all those things as well? Plus some other things like, for example, mm -hmm. you know, farming the, the labeling out to multiple people and doing some kind of quorum or voting or something like that. Right. So, so no. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, the simple answer is no. So um, yeah, so we, we are not, doing crowdsourcing. So first of all, we don't use Mechanical Turk. Oh, okay. We don't use any, any external um, community. We use our own community um, through our Spare5 app and through the web um, that are, you know, everyone is fully vetted. We have um, great detailed information on our users. We get Facebook and LinkedIn data from our users. We do lots of survey and skill assessments. We're continuously monitoring their, their tasking behaviors in real time, um, monitoring the quality of, you know, of the tasks that are being submitted. And so, um, but we are not crowdsourcing. So the, on the flip side, what, what we do is we get really, really good at understanding the quality of the work that the, that the community members are able to provide so that we are targeting, we're targeting the right um, users from the beginning, right? And then, so we've got predictive models in place to identify when a new task comes in, 
we can identify who are the users that we uh, believe are most likely to do well uh, on that task. Mm. And so we can initially target the right subset of our community. Then we turn the task on and we have a, a real-time monitoring system. Um, so we, we turn on that process and then as soon as the task is live, all of that real-time monitoring is feeding back into our predictive models for quality assessment on the user. And so we're making real-time decisions about when to potentially remove access to a part um, to a particular for a particular user because um, we're not seeing the level of quality that we need. Um, okay. And so we have a kind of that user quality model um, running in real time. And then we also have an additional layer, which is an answer quality model. So depending on the task, um, for some for some task types, there are other um, types of data and information available just based on the answer that itself that's provided. And so we have that additional layer just to make sure that the answer itself is, is meeting our quality bar okay. according to our models. That's interesting. My initial reaction was, oh, it sounds like crowdsourcing, but you uh, know, yeah. <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, semantics here. But it sounds like the key distinction you're, that you guys would make is that, you know, with crowdsourcing, you kind of put the task out there and anyone can kind of take it. And what you guys are doing is, you know, targeting it to specific people who yeah. you've developed a relationship with over time. Is that the right way to think about well, that, it? That's true. And I think, you know, it is a little bit semantics and just culturally how, how people use the terms. But I think that crowdsourcing often connotates that you're going to send a question to multiple users and then assemble a correct answer from those multiple users. Okay. Right. And so that's, that's kind of the main distinction that I make. So a lot, you know, oftentimes if we're talking to customers, especially if they've already got a lot of experience themselves working with Mechanical Turk, they're really interested in, you know, well, what are the metrics you're using to decide whether you have enough consensus on a specific answer to move forward? And how many users do you need to ask each question and that sort of thing? And in our, in our setting, it's actually irrelevant. That's not, that's not the approach we use. That's not the perspective that we follow. Okay. So is it fair then to think about this space um, as like Mechanical Turk is an API on top of the people, but you have to build everything. You're yes. figuring, it out, figuring out how to get them your tasks. You're figuring out how to do all this voting stuff so that you can get decent quality data, whatever. Yeah, um, you're writing. Yeah, you're writing the instructions. You're, you're doing. Yeah, you're filtering, you know, which users are you going to use, trying, trying to track their quality, all of those things yourself. Right. And then Crowdflower, who uh, I think a few months ago announced some specific uh, some specific offerings around labeling that I covered yeah. on the podcast, like they're kind of taking they actually originally were on Mechanical Turk, but I think they've right. got their own community now. And they they're kind of a slightly higher level of abstraction that's mm -hmm. doing a little bit more uh of the stuff but still fundamentally this we're going to take the task and push it to a bunch of people and that's right choose that's right. the results and you guys yep. are you know we're going to look at your problem and design a solution to get you quality data and you don't have that's to think exactly about any right. of the other stuff that's exactly right okay and can you talk a little bit about you know as a statistician like what are some of the interesting problems that you've uh you've come up against uh, in yeah. helping to build this for, for Spare 5? Yeah, I think, I mean, the the most interesting and challenging problem for me was just how how do we design a system and a platform that can work in a general sense at scale? 
So, you know, when I, when, when I started out, you know, um, we were still doing, there was still a component of manual review internally just to, to make sure the various processes that we had in place were working as expected. And we had a lot of tailored, you know, for this task type, we manage it in this way. And for this task type, we manage it in this way. Uh-huh. And so when I came in, that was one of my initial goals was how do I, how do I come to understand this entire system with all the complexity for so many different types of tasks. You know, we have objective tasks, we have subjective tasks, we're looking at images, we're looking at text, we're doing all of these different types of problems. Um, how do we how do we develop kind of a cohesive system to attack and address all of these different task types and ensure the right level of quality? So that was that was really exciting. <laughs> for me and the, you know, and that's been the focus, you know, over the last several months and, and now we're there. And, uh, and so that to me is, has just been a really exciting accomplishment. That sounds pretty huge. Can you talk or can you talk to whatever level of detail you can? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Uh, pipeline yeah. slash tech sure. stack. Oh, yeah, slash... Yeah. oh, sorry. Can you, could you clarify the last part? Oh, your, your, your data science pipeline slash technology yeah. stack, uh, slash, sure. you know, kind of anything that can help folks get a sense for, you know, as they're building, uh, yeah. labeling platforms, what are some of the, uh, things that they need to consider? Sure. Um, well, so I can tell you just for the tech stack that we have here. So on the back end, we're using Ruby. Um, we use R. Postgres, uh, and then we have a lot of different AWS services. Um, And then on the front end, we have a web client as well as a native iOS application. And yeah, and so let's see. Um, Yeah, so I think that there's a little bit... Sorry, maybe you can give me a little more guidance on exactly what direction you want to... Oh, yeah, so so that... Um, that is very helpful on understanding the, the tech platform. It sounds like you guys are taking advantage of the cloud, uh, and AWS in particular, yeah. uh, as you, you know, when you thought about this challenge of, okay, we've got all these different types of data. Uh, how do we unify this into a, a single platform that you sure. know, eliminates like the, ma- a lot of the manual steps that you mm-hmm. described? Mm-hmm. Uh, are there, any lessons that you've learned about uh, building uh, data science pipelines that helped you achieve that goal that you think would be transferable to other people? Yeah, and I, I don't know that this is specific to data labeling. Um, I would say, I would say one thing um, that I've learned that that's worked really well both here and in um, previous companies that I've been in in terms of integrating data science um, with the existing tech and existing product is I think what's What's really essential is you want you want your data scientists to be focused on prototyping, like rapid prototyping. Um, you want you want them to be really nimble in terms of you know, hey, if if something about the product changes next week, we want to be able to like dig into the guts of our, our models, make our changes really quickly, and be able to push that back out into production in a seamless way. And um, and you don't want your data scientists to have to be spending the majority of their time, you know, maintaining and um, these larger systems and, and really having to having to be so focused on the engineering side in terms of, you know, let's make sure everything's staying up and stable and doing what it needs to be doing. So, so one solution uh, in the team that I led 
previously at my previous company, one solution that we came to, which worked really well was we developed. So we still wanted our data scientists to be able to, um, to prototype as quickly as possible. So I would say, you know, R is fantastic um, in terms of prototyping. You have your, you know, the, the graphics and visualization component is, you know, un, <laughs> uh, you know, is unsurpassed <laughs> by, by any other software. You know, you have Python has lots of packages that are fantastic. Um, you can definitely do some good data visualization there, but our team was focused on R. And so we wanted our, our teams to be able to, um, to do their modeling. And you know, we had a lot of predictive modeling, um, kinds of work going on there. We wanted uh, our data scientists to be able to do the predictive modeling in R and hand off the actual model component um, to the larger system uh, in such a way that, you know, it was sort of a, you know, plug it in so that you have, you know, these are the inputs coming into the model. These are the outputs coming out of R and we want that. Um, we want to be able to just take that, that chunk of code that is the model, pass that over into production and, and get that plugged in and going at scale. And, um, and that, you know, what, what worked really well, um, what we've done in both situations is we've used, um, actually used RServe. It doesn't have a, a fabulous amount of documentation out there, but it, it works really well. Um, and there's, a uh, yeah. So anyway, so, so building out a, a system with RServe, building out some software around that to allow, um, kind of just the kind of input output portion to be handed over. And, um, so that, so that you can have, you know, other standard systems, you know, picking it up and hitting your models, um, and, you know, moving that all into the cloud so that you can, you know, if, if you start getting a lot more volume hitting your model than you originally anticipated, right. You can just spin up some additional clusters and, and manage that traffic. Is our serve, uh, open source? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so what I, I think what I'm hearing is that you've got, uh, the, the exploration, uh, and the model development, that's all mm -hmm. happening in R. And then yes. you're able to take those models and essentially deploy them into R serve and use that for prediction, as opposed to having to throw that over to an engineering group to exactly them up using something else. Yeah, and exactly. Exactly. And, and what I would say too is, I mean, it really depends on the algorithm that you come up with. If you're prototyping and in the end, you end up using something that's mathematically very simple, um, then, you know, then maybe you just pass along, you know, your pseudocode, you know what I mean? Of right, like, okay, right. these, are, these are the kinds of things that I'm doing. These are the steps and you have that re-implemented in a faster language. Um, but, uh, but if you're using, you know, there are, there are many, many fantastic, um, predictive modeling packages available directly in R. And if you, if you get your system set up correctly, you, you know, um, you know, we were using, you know, we had predictive models with, you know, uh, a thousand features, um, in, in real time, returning results in about 100 milliseconds, right, coming straight out of R, if all you're hitting R for is the actual modeling component, right, once it's already constructed. So, um, you know, and I, think, and I think keeping the model code in R in that sense just makes it all that much easier for, you know, any modifications down the line that need to be made. Um, and, you know, and, and I think another layer that you can add on top of that, you know, which can work really well is, is if you can start to integrate some automated model rebuilding mechanisms, right? So you've got, got one system going on that's pulling in new data, continuously updating your models, and then you've got another system that's just plugging into the existing most current model to actually get the results. That can work really well. Uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you raised that. I was uh, thinking about that as well. And if you 
what you've done to address like model drift over time and if you've been able sure. to build in like 360 degree feedback loops, that kind of thing. Yeah, so um, just somewhat, I, have, I haven't gone too deep on those sorts of things. So what, what I have some tricks that I like to use in terms of um, kind of monitor, model, model monitoring um, uh -huh. when you are doing automatic updates and things. And so there's various kinds of sanity checks. There's a, there's a paper out of Microsoft that was just fantastic in terms of like, these are all the things that can go wrong when you put your model on autopilot and <laughs> right. And these are the things that you need to be monitoring. And so, um, with just, uh, they're like seven step-by-step -step <laughs> suggestions in terms of things that you might want to get implemented. And, and that's fantastic. I can, I can, um, try and pull up that paper for you. Oh, that would be amazing. That sounds like a great resource. Yes. Is it relatively recent? I believe it was in the last couple of years. Yeah, got to okay. look it up. Mm -hmm. Just making a note. Yep. And then you guys are focused on uh, computer vision and natural language. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's our focus right now. Mm -hmm. And how do those, those domains influence the approach you've taken? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, so, so clearly with computer vision, we're dealing with, um, with image data, right? <laughs> and so, um, so I think it, you know, it's had a huge influence in terms of the, the types of tooling that we're building out to allow our users to, you know, correctly annotate the data, you know, our, our, our end resulting data is only as good as the tooling allows, um, for user accuracy. Right. right. So, um, so it's definitely had a, a major influence in, yeah, the, the types of tasks, the types of tooling, things like that, that we've been designing. Uh -huh. Um, but, but I would say, um, at, at this point in the, you know, in the, in the general system for QA that, that we've constructed, um, that, that is general. It's not, it's not specific in those areas, but what we would like to do, um, continue, I guess, um, delving into is internally, um, you know, what can we do in terms of natural language and, um, computer vision modeling ourselves internally to improve the quality of the results itself. And, and, and that's something that we're just now starting to dive into. Okay. Uh, so in providing the services that you guys pro provide, are you, needing to get into things like deep learning and other things, or are these uh, more the things that the customers would use to train, uh, to train with the data that you're providing? Yeah, that's right. So, so we, we purely handle delivery of the training data so we okay. can do, we can do some consulting in terms of, yeah, you know, if you use data like this, you know, this, this is how, you know, that may affect the models, but it's really just more of a consulting aspect. We're not doing any of the model training ourselves. We're not hosting any models, nothing like that. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Do you have a set of, um, you know, is there like a top three list of things that, um, you would want everyone to know about, uh, training data? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> um, let's see. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think anyone who's got, you know, any experience in the field knows that, you know, your model is only as good as your training data. If your, if your training data really only represents, you know, a subset, a specific subset of the space in which you expect your model to, to function, um, then, you know, you're going to have, you're definitely going to have low accuracy in, in areas where you haven't provided as much training data. 
Um, so definitely you need good, good coverage in terms of, you know, whatever, whatever the inputs that you're going to be anticipating, um, that will be coming into this final model that you build. You want to make sure that your training data represents those inputs as closely as possible, Uh um, in order to get the best results. Okay. One more. One more. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well, and I, I think, um, I guess one interesting thing to think about is it, you know, it depends. I think in the, in the computer vision and natural language applications that we're focused on, the quality of the data data is really essential. Um, but in, in other, in other areas, there are situations where you can get away with, you know, less with lower quality training data. And the model is, you know, as long as the, as long as the patterns are there and the patterns are present, um, you know, your model model may still be able to pick up those patterns. Right. And so um, I guess just keeping in mind what level of quality is important or essential for the type of model that you're building and the type of methods, methods that you're using. Um, you know, there can be some variation there. Okay. How would you characterize the scenarios in which you can get away with the lower quality training data? Um, I would say, Uh, definitely when your, when your model is more about summarizing and generalizing the data, then, you know, having a few odd observations in there isn't going to dramatically affect, you know, affect that, that summary. Um, are there any examples that come to mind of customer SpaceX? Uh, Oh, Mm. let's see. Um, well, I'm, I don't know. There's some, well, so here's an interesting example. It's a little bit on the edge of, of what you're talking about here. So, okay. um, so Sentient is uh, is a customer of ours um, that that is they're a provider of of AI. We have a task that we've been running uh, for them for for um, quite some time now. What they're interested in understanding is user perception of similarities between shoes. So, okay. so they're building out. Um, you know, the, you know they have models that they're building out that are trying to decide what shoes belong together, um, not from some specific taxonomy or, you know, hierarchy that some human person wrote down, but, you know, like, oh, first you go by color and then by size or nothing like that. What they want to mm-hmm. understand is what a human person looking at a, a collection of shoes, you know, here, if you say, here's one pair of shoes, now look at these other 10 pair of shoes, which one is most similar? And they're really trying to understand the human's perspective of, you know, which of these 10 shoes do you think is similar? So it's a very ambiguous task. It doesn't uh-huh. actually have a right or a wrong answer. Um, but, but when we throw this task out to our users and we return the data back um, to Sentient, they are able, they've had very good success in terms of improving their models, which, uh, you know, in terms of what types of results they're able to surface at, you know, as a result of getting a very deep understanding of what similarity means at a human level. So, you know, there, there are many, many varying degrees of, you know, of going, you know, the ambiguity versus, you know, essentially a, a very precise, you know, correct answer. And, and, and it just absolutely depends on the model that you're trying to build um, exactly what you need. Okay. In, in that example, are they ultimately trying to make recommendations or do something? I else? believe so. I believe so. Okay. Um, man, I feel like I should have asked you about customer examples way, yeah, way, way sooner. That <laughs> was awesome. Time ago. <laughs> uh, are there other interesting uh, kind of use cases that you guys have uh, taken on sure. that uh, we can talk sure. about? Sure. 
Yeah. Well, so here's one we did recently. This was kind of different for us and it was a lot of fun. Um, so there's a company called init, init.ai, okay. um, and they're building AI chatbot technology. And so they, they're interested in building these chatbots in specific contexts. And so they really, they need, um, conversation data, like they need, you know, a text of conversations in these contexts and they're having a difficult time going out, um, and, you know, finding that data publicly available, things like that. And so, um, so we were talking with them, um, you know, and, uh, you know, we've already typically done lots of categorization of text. We, um, we'll do, uh, what's called like aspect opinion linking of text, you know, various kinds of NL, um, tasks. Um, but what, what we ended up doing for in it was we actually, helped them produce the conversations um, and then took those conversations and labeled the data, the text of those conversations. So we actually ended up designing a task that we put out to our community, which was, you know, pretend you're uh, selling flowers and, huh. uh, you know, and now you know, be the, be the person selling flowers. And then to another user, we're saying, you know, pretend you're buying flowers and maybe we, you know, give some guidance, things that the customer is interested in, in learning more about. And we actually, send, send the task back and forth to collect a complete conversation. Oh, um, wow. so yeah, so I think we, we assembled something, I, I forget on the, I think it was something like 10,000 conversations that we assembled. And then for each of those conversations, we went back and we did the labeling that they needed in order to understand the content of what's going on, um, you know, in those conversations, uh, to help train the, the AI models that they're building. So that was, that was fun. That was fun for us in terms of just designing it out, but it was also fun for the community. We got so much feedback from people saying like, I love this. <laughs> I could do this all day, you know, cause you're just, <laughs> and, 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 the, and the conversations were fantastic. So, I mean, it was, it, it was really, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. That reminds me of someone had uh, a month ago or so set up basically these three kind of conversational chat bots in a, oh. in a chat room and they were just kind of talking, talking to oh each other God. and he would sit there and monitor. And when they got stuck, he just throw out some random thing to get them talking to one another. Oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> oh, I got to look that up. <laughs> that's fantastic. Oh. That's all. Uh, so, um, I don't know that I'll be able to find that, but if I can, I'll stick it in the show notes. Okay. That'd be great. <laughs> that'd be fantastic. Uh, so one of your top, one of your top three, uh, things was subsetting the space, which reminded me that, uh, we needed to talk about this diversity point. Oh, right. I want you to kind of start us off in this discussion with, uh, you know, the examples that come to mind for you of like where it's been done really poorly. Well, well, actually I have an example. Um, this is something, uh, we actually, uh, had an article in TechCrunch about this recently. Um, so we've been thinking about this a lot just since, you know, it's obviously a benefit that we can provide to our customers to, to actually get the diversity in the, you know, the community that they need. Um, but so we did a little experiment in house. So we started thinking about the question of, you know, how different are the results? Like how different does the training data look if you're sampling, you know, various types of populations. And so, um, you know, and, and it turns out we really didn't have to dig very deep. So one of the first data sets that I went to analyze, um, we had, we had a task that we had put out to our users just as sort of a, a fun mental break <laughs> once in a while, which was called uh, rate the puppies. And so we just show you pictures of puppies and then you rate them from one to five stars and, you know, uh, you know, cute or okay, maybe not so cute. And, uh, and so we'd collected, we'd been collecting that data actually over, over quite a long period of time, just, you know, a few puppies to rate, you know, here and there for our users. And so the first, 
thing I thought was, okay, let me just take a look at the data and see how the ratings differ by gender. And so I, I split the data up by gender and it was just dramatic and obvious difference that the women were rating the puppies as cuter consistently across the board, across all puppies. And, um, huh. with, and there was a wider gap on the cuter end of the spectrum and the gap was more narrow on the not so cute end of the spectrum. Um, but it was, but it was still there and, uh, yeah, and it was just striking, right. It's, you know, it's, it's a simple example and you know, okay, well how, how does it matter? <laughs> you know, how cute the women and the men are rating the puppies. Okay. Probably not, but it's such a, it's such a clear, uh, example of the difference differences that you can get <laughs> in the training data itself, right. Just by sampling a different population Right. And of course, the training data is what's guiding your model in terms of the output that's coming up the other end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, so that's, art that's an article in TechCrunch. We can put a link to that article as well. Okay, nice, nice. And so the do you run into any challenges in, in identifying uh, diverse communities to, um, to target? Like what are the challenges right. generally that come – come up for you guys and trying to solve this problem for people? Sure. So um, each of our customers is going to have, you know, their own, their own demographic that they're, that they are targeting. Right. And so um, at this point we have a broad international community. We have many, many users in the U S we also have many, we have a good presence across just internationally. Um, and we have good data in terms of who our users are because we, we put out, um, surveys to collect demographic information. We, we put out, you know, many different surveys to, to our users, you know, that they're compensated for, for completing these surveys, um, to be able to collect that information. So we have a good understanding of our, our current, um, user base, which is, you know, which is very diverse, but we, we occasionally still have a customer come in and ask for something very specific that we haven't targeted before. So they potentially could say, um, you know, we have this task and we need, who knows, uh, we need, experts in bird identification to label these images of birds, you know, and tell us precisely what species of bird, you know, this is, you know, something, something mm -hmm. like that. Right. And so okay. when that comes up, um, you know, we can, first of all, we can go out and survey our community and find out, you know, in our, in our broad community, do we have people who are able, able um, to do this type of classification already? We can identify them. Um, but, and if we find that we don't have enough members in the community yet to meet the velocity needs or, you know, the, the volume needs for the customer, then we can go out and do specific targeting to bring uh, like, you know, online marketing to bring those individuals into our community. And we've had good success with that. Okay. Uh, so we've talked about uh, demographic targeting primarily mm -hmm. thus far. Have you ever done anything with uh, psychographic targeting? Like, Right. <laughs> uh, I don't know. For whatever reason, I'm thinking, hey, I, we want this to be answered by uh, Myers sure. Briggs ENTJs or. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, we've definitely talked about it. There's, yeah, there's, you know, there are all sorts of interesting just personality profiles out there. And that's right. what's kind of lovely is because we do have this stable community um, that, that's working with us, is if we put a survey out to the community, right, um, you know, and, and we compensate them for their time uh, in, in completing that survey, we can get any, any data that we need. So it, it's actually, it's actually very easy for us to target the user that the customer is interested in. Okay. Okay. And this is a little bit of an aside, but I, I often think that in the example of like Uber ratings, you know, I think that there's probably, well, not probably there's, you know, there are, you know, four average raters and there are three average raters, like, you know, hard graders and easy graders. 
I don't have the impression that, you know, an Uber, for example, would normalize, you know, a person's rating against their average rating. Uh, right. Because it's, it has a strict interpretation, right? Three stars, exactly, three stars. That's exactly. what the user said. Yeah. Uh, do, do, is it, does anyone do, uh, something like that or, you know, to what degree to, to what degree, uh, to your knowledge, do folks think about that in, you know, thinking about like rating schemes, uh, and what's the current kind of thinking in the industry around that kind of stuff? Yeah. So yeah, this is a little outside of my, my area. Yeah, it's totally right. So yeah. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, I actually thought about this quite a bit when I was working on the Netflix prize competition, because okay. in that case we have the one to five stars rating system. Right. And so, you know, I, so I went really deep in just in understanding, like, you know, what are, what are these different user profiles or, you know, what types of users are out there and, you know, what do these distributions generally look like? And yeah, it's like on a one to five star rating system, you basically get ones, fours and fives and occasionally a three, you almost never get a two. And, uh, you know, so, um, so I don't know. So I have some interesting tidbits, you know, and thoughts about that in general. Um, but you know, it, currently at Spare Five, from from our perspective, you know, uh, we occasionally do ratings tasks. It's not one of the it's not one of the common um, customer requirements. Um, and we'll talk with the customer about whether you know is a is a binary answer going to be more informative for them or a three level answer versus a five star answer. Um, and and so we do have some experience and background in thinking about what type of data. Um, is going to come out of those different kinds of rating systems. And, you know, and besides just the rating system itself, you know, the wording of the question is so important in terms of, you know, you, you know, the words that you use, if you, if you have a three layer system, do you say, you know, perfect, okay, terrible, you know, or, or do you make it more, you know, more nuanced, it, right? And you're going to get, you're going to get different data based on different wording that you use, Interesting. which, yeah, which actually that, uh, to just to segue into, you know, another, like a whole, whole other area of things that we are thinking about constantly here at Spare Five is just, just in the, the wording and the framing of, uh, of the question is, is just such an essential piece of what we do here. Whether, you know, even if it's not a rating question, even if it's a totally open-ended, um, you know, writing, writing captions for an image or, uh, free text keywords, uh, versus, you know, very objective, um, taxonomy categorization, things like that the wording of the question makes all the difference, right? And so in our case, you know, we actually take our users through, uh, or there's a, there's a complete process. So when, when a new task comes in, right, we're iterating with the customer trying to design the task. When we start preparing our users to complete that task, um, we, we will typically put up a tutorial. We'll start with a tutorial. So the user's just working through the tutorial. They can work through it as many times as they want. And it's giving them direct feedback on whether they're, um, you know, doing what's appropriate for the task. Uh, the next stage is a qualifier, which is more like a quiz. You don't get the feedback as you're doing it. At the end, you find out if you passed or not. And typically, we won't allow users to continue into the task without completing the qualifier. Um, right. And so, so we have instructions for the task that we're writing. We have the tutorial that we're writing. We have the qualifier that we're writing. And then we have the task itself and the questions uh, that we're designing inside the task, right? And all of the wording, logic, the orientation and design of that information on the page, it is all part of the, you know, the whole formula of how do you get the right data coming out at the end? And so, so that's, that's a really important piece that I think people that are, are new to this field or just finding out about it for the first time, don't realize, um, what an intense amount of, 
of work and thought and effort goes into getting that right. Uh, that's really interesting. To what degree are you relying on uh, or do you have the benefit of relying on uh, other folks' research to figure some of this yeah. stuff out or is it all empirical analysis on your part? Right. Uh, so there is definitely a lot of great learning already out there, um, you know, that's been published. So we um, we have uh, Dan Weld is a computer science professor at UW, and he consults with us um, regularly. He's been fantastic. He's a crowdsourcing expert, and uh, he's been fantastic about pointing us to, you know, all the good research out there about different things that have been tried in terms of, yeah, in terms of instructions and tutorials and designing tasks and all those kinds of things. So, so there's definitely a lot of learning there, but I would say, um, you know, given, given that, you know, we are working in, in a somewhat, <laughs> in a somewhat different space in that we are not doing traditional crowdsourcing. We are not, you know, farming answers, questions out to multiple users at a time. And so there has been a lot of just individualized learning on our part in terms of how do we work with our users and what level are are our our users at and you know how do how do we how do we bring them through the training process to get them to the level that we need um, so there's definitely a lot of internal learning and I would say you know each time we do another task you know each you know we have certain task types that we've done again and again and again at this point and we're learning each time we do them along the way how to make refinements how to optimize that process. Um, you know, how to make it even more clear, anything that we can uh -huh. do to make, to make the instructions more clear, it just saves in terms of efficiency because we have that many more answers coming through that are actually accepted, um, and allowed into the deliverable for the customer. Nice. Nice. Uh, I think we're coming up on an hour. Anything else yeah. that you'd like to share with the audience? Um, yes, absolutely. Well, I would say, um, yeah, if anyone is interested in, getting in touch with us, you know, there's a couple of ways to get in touch. You can always head over to spare5.com. Um, you can also email me directly. I'm Angie at spare5.com. And I guess one other thing that we wanted to let the listeners know about. So we have a blog series that we started a couple of months ago. Uh -huh. It's called conversations in machine learning. And it's just all about any interesting new applications, um, in AI and ML, um, things, you know, that are popping up all over at various companies that we're watching in this space. And for your listeners, we're offering a fantastically fabulous spare five t-shirt to the first 25 people who subscribe to the blog series. And if anyone's interested, they can sign up at it's a spare slash podcast. Uh, well, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I'll include a link to that, of course, in the show notes. Okay. Wonderful. Thanks. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Angie. This has been a great conversation and I really enjoyed it. And you. Thanks. Uh, catch you next time. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Sam. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. That's it for today's show. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks once again to Spare 5 for sponsoring the show. Please don't forget to sign up for their t-shirt offer at spare5.com slash podcast. And of course, we both want to hear your feedback. On Twitter, I'm at TwimmelAI, T-W-I-M-L-A-I, and Spare5 is simply at Spare5. Reach out to us and let us know what you thought about the conversation. Thanks so much for your continued support and catch you next time. Oh, 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 oh,